This is an ABC podcast. Uh, we've just heard from Wellington Radar that we've got an object about a mile behind us and it's following us. Let's hope they're friendly. Yeah, there's a whole formation of unidentified flying objects behind us. Victoria's Bass Strait Coast has always been saturated with stories of people vanishing into the bush, into the sea and into the sky. Today, we hear about one of them, the case of Frederick Valentich. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley, and in this History Listen, strap yourself in while we head back in time to 1978, when a young pilot disappeared in strange circumstances off the south coast of Victoria, a mystery that has only become more perplexing with time. Philosopher Patrick Stokes grapples with a story that continues to haunt the Australian imagination and the lives of those still caught up in it. The mystery of this case has uh, kept it alive, you know. And every year uh, the story has resurfaced in some way or not. There's been somebody wanting to know something sort of thing, so it's kept it alive. Cape Otway, Saturday 21st of October, 1978. Frederick Valentich doesn't like flying over water. At just 20 years old, he has done this flight down to King Island before, but never before at night. Still, when he reaches the Cape Otway Lighthouse at 7pm, 42 minutes after takeoff, everything is as it should be. A near cloudless twilight, little wind. Even Bass Strait is oil calm. He turns his Cessna 182L southeast and heads out to sea. Six minutes later, Valentich radios Melbourne again and asks if there are any other aircraft nearby. Someone, he says, is up there with him. Here's a recreation based on the transcript of that conversation. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to me like landing lights. On the other end of the radio, Settling into the five to midnight shift at Melbourne Flight Services Unit at Tullamarine is Steve Roby. Forty years on, Steve remembers that day very well. Well, he certainly sounded um, agitated. Uh, initially, you know, I was concerned because he reported a, another aircraft. Um, he suggested possibly a military aircraft, so it had to be of some size. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least a thousand feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? You know, I had absolutely no details on another aeroplane. It was a very quiet night. No known aircraft in the vicinity. So it developed from there. Over the next six minutes, Valentich describes a mysterious craft that seems to be moving above and around his plane. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Uh, became apparent that uh, it 
couldn't have been an aircraft the way it was moving and the speed at which it was moving. Well, the Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft, it's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. You cannot identify it, it has such speed. One stage he said it disappeared and then it reappeared and he was uh, orbiting and the thing was formated on top of him. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic, like, it's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. I come to the conclusion that it was it was not an aeroplane, it was some sort of object that was, uh, you know, uh, harassing him, I suppose you could say. Is the aircraft still with you? Say again. Is the aircraft still with you? Now approaching from the southwest. Just before 7.12pm, Valentich reports that he's having engine trouble. He has a life jacket, but if he ditches, he knows he's a poor swimmer. What are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island, Melbourne. That strange aircraft's hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Then, at 7.12 and 22 seconds, there's 17 seconds of open microphone and a metallic clanging or scraping noise. Here's the actual recording of that sound. Then silence. It is five minutes before last light and Delta Sierra Juliet has vanished. Frederick Valentich will never be seen again. The story you've just heard has been told hundreds of times over the 40 years since it happened. It's become a part of Australian folklore, yet another uncanny tale of disappearance on the Bass Strait coast with a space age twist. Nineteen seventy eight was something of a key year for UFOs in Australasia, on screen and in the skies. On the sixteenth of March, Steven Spielberg's film Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released in Australia. Two months after Fred Valentich vanished, a plane carrying journalist Quentin Fogarty and his TV film crew recorded mysterious fast-moving lights over the Kaikoura coast in New Zealand. Uh, we've just heard from Wellington Radar that we've uh, got an object about a mile behind us and it's following us. Let's hope they're friendly. It's uh, really getting uh, a bit frightening up here. There's a whole formation of un- unidentified flying objects behind us. In the end, though, while Fred's story is a UFO story, it's not really a story about UFOs. It's a story of loss, suspended grief, 
and the unknowability of the past and of other people. Moorabbin Airport, Sunday 21st of October 2018. Exactly 40 years ago today, this was the last place Fred Valentich was seen alive. Today, Victorian UFO Action, or VUFOA, has organised a one-day event to commemorate the tragedy and perhaps try to shed some light on the mystery. Many of the people here today have been living with this case for decades. Steve Roby's here. So is Mike Hodges, the aircraft mechanic who was one of the last people to speak to Fred on the ground. But he was a person who was prone to a little bit of anxiety. Um, I'd given him a ride down to the run-up bay, which is over there. He was sitting in the co-pilot seat with me. Um, he was asking questions, but he did sound anxious. Um, There's George Simpson, a veteran UFO researcher who's long suspected he saw Valentich's plane on its way out of the city. Okay, well, I'm convinced that I did, but I can't prove it. <laughs> um, I just went out to the letterbox. I was just waiting for my girlfriend who was coming over. It was quarter past six, and um, I saw the plane go past, and I had a funny thought at the time, which was just an idea popped into my mind as I watched the plane, which was keep an eye on that plane. I often watch planes anyway, but I don't know why I thought that. But there's one person here today who is uniquely anchored to the events of 1978. He was very friendly, um, always smiling, um, which you see in a lot of the photos. Um, he'd always joke about things um, and try to stir people, you know, like in a funny way. Um, very confident with everything he did. That March, Frederick met a 16-year-old friend of a friend named Rhonda Rushton. As Rhonda tells it, it was pretty much love at first sight. Well, Peter was talking and Fred and I were just looking at each other and we actually remember that we couldn't remember what Peter said. <laughs> it was like we just, you know, sort of stared at each other and then... Fred said he had to go and he walked off and just as he walked off, oh, like, you know, a little bit, um, I turned around and he turned around at the same time. Fred, the dashing older boy, tall and smart in his dark blue uniform, driving Rhonda across town and across the skies, even flying at a Newcastle to visit her favourite uncle on a whim. Fred was at my house the night before and I had, we had arranged that I would go with him which I'd gone on many, many flights with him. So, um, so many strange events happened that day and just stopped me from going. By October, Fred and Rhonda were engaged. The ring was still on lay-by when the news came through. Um, I was at home. Um, I was still dressed to go out with him for that night. Uh, I lied on my bed all night, I didn't sleep. And um, in the morning, my dad re religiously would turn the ABC on at 6 a.m. every morning. And as soon as he turned it on, it's the first thing that came on was that a pilot had gone missing over Bass Strait. So I got up and I rang Rabin Airport 
not my father, I rang them and I said to them, I think I know the pilot that's gone missing. And they said, reply to me, you tell us who you think it is. And I said, I think it's Frederick Valentich. And then they said, hold the line. And then I just broke down and my father took over. The report of missing pilot, Frederick Valentich, has captured everyone's imagination. His final conversation describing a cigar-shaped object which orbited around him over Bass Strait was today splashed across the front pages of Australian newspapers, in itself a victory for those wanting to see credence given to such sightings. The media started ringing pretty much an hour after I found out and the phone rang all day and then there was reporters out the front of my house. Then I'd have people out the front of my house 24 hours a day. Um, they would pull up in a car and then they, another car would come up behind that car and toot and then that car would drive off and he would sit there for 12 hours or more. And they'd just take photos, but if they saw any movement, the cameras would just go berserk. And so I couldn't leave the house at all and I lost my job as well. Uh, and then the media was relentless the whole time for at least three weeks. Rhonda has a tattoo on her left arm. She tells me she got it about three years ago. It simply reads, VHDSJ, 21 October 1978, 1912-22. Fred's plane registration and the exact moment it vanished. Do you believe Frederick is aboard a UFO? Uh, well, I, heart, I, I wouldn't know what to believe, but uh, it, something very strange maybe has been lift up in a uh, higher altitude and perhaps might be released then, you know, in, in some other part of this earth. In January 1979, Fred's father Guido writes a letter to the Department of Transport. He asks for a copy of the tape of Frederick's last transmissions so the family could have some record of his voice. Have you any grounds for this belief? Uh, well, yes, I have ground because I believe entirely what the uh, uh, Department of Transport has made me understood that uh, what these uh, communications is very authentic and it's also a mystery to them. Bending their usual rules, the department agreed on the proviso, Guido never released the tape to the media. He was a, a loving family, he was a good father, and um, I really felt for him over the years um, because he never really found out what happened to his son. Guido kept that promise. He died in 2000, having reportedly never lost hope that someday, somehow, Fred would come back. Soon the ship arrives at Port Phillip Bay and is ready to dock at Station Pier, Port Melbourne. First on board are the immigration officers who will assist with reception and accommodation arrangements. Guido and Alberta Valentich arrived in Melbourne from Trieste on the SS Toscanelli in 1955. They settled in Avondale Heights, 
one of the new suburbs springing up from old dairy paddocks in the city's west. Frederick, their first child, came along on the 9th of June 1958, followed by his brother and twin sisters. The one thing I do remember the most was that Fred used to tell stories. Chris O'Connor was a founding member of infamous Australian rock band Painters and Dockers. He also briefly went to school with Fred. The one that has stuck in my head my whole life is one he told us about his family. It was related to his family back home in Italy, back in the, the mountains in the Alps, and about his grandfather going off into the into the snow in, up the mountains and an avalanche happened and he was killed and, and buried under the snow and they never found him and he was dead and then it was a year later or sometime later when the snow had melted the grandmother was walking in the same area where he disappeared and looked down and in a, a craggy rocket there was a hole in the rock and she found his finger the story went on that he the grandmother kissed the finger and died instantly on the spot and we all just went nah <laughs> we all thought it was just a, a crazy made-up story fred wasn't a strong student his passions were mechanical particularly motorbikes and flying he'd been an rwf air training corps cadet as a boy and after school tried to enter the raf as a radio operator but they twice refused to take him on the grounds of academic ability, declaring him low IQ, fit for unskilled work only. But Fred was persistent. He started showing up again at the Air Training Corps as an unpaid civilian helper until they finally took him on with the rank of airman. He got his private pilot's licence and got up in the air every chance he had, taking Rhonda for many flights in the few months they had together. He did have a small interest in UFOs um, and it was starting to get a, a probably a little bit bigger because he said he saw them, some things at sale when he was there and but also the movie had come out, The Close Encounters, and he was so excited about that. But I remember one night, we were up, we used to go up Danning Hill Mountains because it's a great view and nothing happening when we just, you know, everyone, everyone did that, you know, and um, so we go up there a bit. Anyway, we're up there one night, we're just chatting and um, Fred said to me, if a UFO came now, I'd love to go with it. But he said, I'll never go without you. Four days after Fred's disappearance, Guido Valentich visits the Department of Transport office to hear the tape recording of his son's final conversation with Steve Roby. The department's file from the case contains an unsettling note from this conversation. Frederick worried about attack from UFOs and what they could do. People are held together across time by the narratives we tell about ourselves and each other. But each time this story is told, we get a different Fred Valentich. In 2012, UFO researcher Keith Basterfield found the Department of Transport's long-lost accident investigation file in the National Archives. As a result, we now know a lot more about what the department's investigators were thinking 
The people who flew with Valentich found him to be a solid and fairly serious pilot. Sober and responsible. Someone who didn't take needless risks. Steve Roby, as an air traffic controller and as a pilot, knows how careful Fred would have been. And um, what um, Rhonda says about uh, Frederick, he was a very conscientious pilot, he was a young student, and when you're young you may, and you have an ambition in, in aviation, you really do everything according to the book. Uh, you can't do anything about it once you're up there, so you've got to make sure that you do it before you take off. You know, I mean, takeoffs are optional, but um, landings are necessary. <laughs> Even so, Valentich was picking up black marks on his record. On the flight back from Newcastle, he strayed into restricted airspace. More seriously, he was reportedly facing possible prosecution for deliberately flying into cloud on two occasions. The investigators discovered that over the course of the year, Fred had repeatedly failed all his commercial pilot licence exams, and he was lying to people about how it was going. On 24th of October, Rhonda visits the department's Melbourne office to be interviewed. And in that interview, they actually shone lights in my face so that I probably couldn't see who it was that was interviewing me. I could just vaguely see their faces, but there were lights on the table and they were shining at me. And they asked the most personal questions and other questions, but very, very personal questions as well. So it was horrifying. <laughs> the interview notes described Rhonda as honest and dependable. But the investigators suggested she was becoming aware that Fred had chosen her as someone to discuss his problems with, and that he was using her, in the investigator's word, as a prop. Within a week of the disappearance, the department's investigators wrote that Fred had built up a facade of his ability, achievement and future. Officially, the department's investigation reached no conclusion. But the undertone of the Department of Transport file is unmistakable. That Valentich either deliberately disappeared or staged an elaborate suicide. The family and others close to the case, however, have always insisted that theory doesn't hold up. Do you think Frederick could have staged his own disappearance? No, no, because it was uh, family tied and uh, his career would be too uh, right reason not to be. Over the years, I have not for one moment entertained the, uh, the theory that uh, he staged his own disappearance. I really do believe that he did encounter something fairly strange. I asked UFO researchers at the VUFOA 40th anniversary event whether they thought the DOT's approach to the case was unfair. George Simpson was scathing. I thought it was a pretty unfair way to start an investigation, um, virtually blaming the pilot for pilot error. And it was obviously out of his control what was happening. He was reporting what was happening to him and he was a victim of what happened. That's how I look at it. John Orkettle was down on the Cape with veteran ufologist Paul Norman in 1978 and beyond. One thing that we did find was that the Department of Transport were caught by surprise. They were very shocked about the, this rap, how rapid this, uh, this case escalated into the press. 
So much so that they were chasing their tail at the end, where the press were right on top of their clacker straight away. So you, there was a lot of speculation going on. Like I said, I've got no complaint with the Department of Transport. What happened was there were people just, uh, you know, trying to explain something very rapidly with little information. Earlier today, debris was sighted near the area where Frederick Valentich disappeared on Saturday night. The captain of this RAAF Orion aircraft directed the crew of the fishing vessel, the Nomad, to the site with direction flares. However, the debris turned out to be nothing more than pieces of cartons and box ends. Despite good weather, an extensive search that lasted several weeks found no trace of Fred's plane. Some events refuse to settle into the stories we tell about them. Instead of resolving, Fred's story just orbits back here to Cape Otway. And here it is. This is the plaque that was unveiled at a small ceremony on the 20th anniversary. The Valentich family uh, organised the plaque and um, Steve Roby was here and, and did the unveiling. There's a picture of Fred and a picture of his plane and it's headed The Unknown. This plaque commemorates the landmark of the mysterious disappearance of Frederick Valentich on 21 October 1978. I still get very emotional, it still affects me. It hasn't changed me. It's been a, a fairly major event in my life and, um, you know, it sort of shakes you up a little bit. Frederick was flying a Cessna 182L and at this point he changed direction to south from the lighthouse towards the sea. 12 minutes flying south from here at precisely 1912, 28 hours, radio transmission was cut off. I usually try not to bring it up, but I've never brought it up. It's always someone else that's brought it up. Strangely enough, when I've talked about it in the past, in pubs and things like that, out with my mates having a few drinks, and people have heard that I was involved in the incident, people have opened up and they've come out with their own stories. I've received a lot of letters from people from all around the world who, knowing that I was involved with this, um, want to tell me their story. In his last radio contact he explained, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again, and it is not an aircraft. I've moved on. If, if, if I'm not at something like this, I just live my life with my partner. After an extensive land and sea search, no trace was ever found of the Cessna VHDSJ or of Frederick Valentich. And so to this day, his disappearance remains a mystery. Frederick Valentich has been vanishing for 40 years, fading into silent, washed-out photos of planes and uniforms. With every retelling, Fred flies through and behind memory, heading out to the horizon at last light, always just about to slip out of view. And we'll leave broadcaster and philosopher Patrick Stokes right there on the shores of Cape Otway in Victoria. His reflections on the Valentish mystery 
and the puzzle of memory were made audible today by sound engineer Jack Montgomery-Parks and producer Lynn Gallagher. I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is the History Listen. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.